Welcome to the third season of our podcast series, Smarter Apple Spraying. Our three-year research and outreach project is funded by USDA's Crop Protection and Pest Management Program. The project is a joint effort of Iowa State University, the Ohio State University, and the USDA Spray Laboratory at Worcester, Ohio. I'm your host, Mark Gleason, a plant pathologist at Iowa State University. The project is looking for ways to maximize the efficiency of pesticide sprays in apple orchards in the Midwest. It combines two technologies in field trials in Iowa and Ohio. One of these technologies is called the Intelligent Sprayer. It's a modified air blast sprayer that can apply pesticides much more precisely and reduce spray drift every time a pesticide spray goes on. The other technology is called disease warning systems. These systems track weather conditions so that pesticides can be applied only when there's a real risk of damage from diseases or pests. The goal here is to save sprays when possible. Our project looks at these new ideas separately and together to see how they can make spraying as cost-effective as possible for apples. So um, we're back with another episode of Smarter Apple Spraying podcast series. And our guest today is Paul Rash. Paul uh, is the owner and operator of Wilson Orchard in Eastern Iowa uh, and has uh, been uh, a member of our advisory panel for our three-year Iowa and Ohio uh, project that's been investigating a number of ways to reduce uh, the amount of pesticide that uh, goes on orchards and improve profitability. So welcome, Paul. Well, great to be here. Appreciate the opportunity. And I think, Paul, you run your own podcast series too, don't you? Well, we have been. Uh, we sort of took a little bit of a hiatus, but we're looking to get back into it. Uh, we, you know, life kind of got in the way and we sort of uh, <laughs> put it on the back burner, but we hope to get back into it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I understand that. Um, Okay, well, maybe you could just describe. Uh, I, I happen to have been in, in Wilson Orchard uh, while it was still owned by Chug Wilson. And maybe you kind of describe the background uh, uh, of the orchard and how you got into that business. Yeah, so I grew up in the, in the sort of uh, apple, industrial apple world uh, in Michigan, in uh, southwestern Michigan. Apples are a, a really big crop. Obviously, uh, our area around Grand Rapids is called the Fruit Ridge. And they grow more than just apples, but primarily it's become an apple-driven industry. And I'm fourth generation in my family to be in that business, so kind of grew up with it. You know, at age six, you got to get, got to work after school, and then you had to work. For, in our family, you had to work till you were 16 before you were freed. And the day I <laughs> freed, <laughs> like it. <laughs> yeah. So the day I turned 16, I got the hell out of there and uh, was going to do electronics. But anyways, you know the way the world works. That's the only way of reining you back in. And after some travel and uh, different different experiences, uh, ended up, long story short, back in the Apple business. Um, we did spend quite a bit of time over in China. We started a fruit juice, the first commercial fruit juice business uh, in China, branded fruit juice into supermarkets and stuff there. I did not know that chapter, uh, Paul. That's fascinating. What, what part of China was that? We were up in Northern China, Tianjin, uh, which is sort of the port city for Beijing. It's mm -hmm. not a lot of people know it. It's the size of Chicago, though. It's a fairly 
pretty big city um, yeah. and sort of surrounded north and south by apples. Uh, it's, uh, mm. it's part of what used to be the old apple uh, area, uh, mm. north in Liaoning and south in Shandong was the biggest mm. apple production until recently when this whole Shanxi province sort of took over in the desert and they grow apples down there like they do in Washington, kind of irrigated dwarf yeah. stuff. So yeah, anyway. I've actually spent a good bit of time in the Shanxi part, uh, the newer, I have a collaboration 20 years with a grower, I mean, a scientist down there and met a number of growers down there, but that's, we're, we're, we're departing from our main subject here, but that's <laughs> fasc fascinating that you did that. So you came back from China after having started this enterprise and, and, and then uh, was that when the uh, Iowa chapter came along or? Yeah, and we were looking, my wife and I, our two kids had grown up in China. We were 13 years there. Goodness. And so we, they were getting ready for college uh, and we wanted them to have the opportunity to go to college here in the US. So we started looking for university towns in the Midwest and sort of stumbled on Iowa City. Every, every year we would come back and spend some time in one city or another. And anyways, mm -hmm. uh, we just kind of fell in love with Iowa City and the lady at the library introduced us to Wilson's Orchard and said, you should go out there. Uh, mm -hmm. We met Chug and Joyce Wilson. Mm -hmm. And I was wanting to get into this kind of, you pick small scale, you know, I was done with industrial farming mm -hmm. and <clears throat> thought it would be a sort of good semi-retirement project. And um, so we sort of, we tried to buy Wilson's. They were looking to get out. But Chuck didn't want to get out, and then he did. Oh. He did. Then he did. <laughs> anyway, long story short, we ended up buying a separate farm that was just empty ground oh, near sure. there, and uh, and worked with the Wilsons on what varieties worked well here. Uh, Paul Demoto also helped at that mm -hmm. point uh, with some ideas on rootstock and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but then, as fate would have it, we no more than got settled here, got our orchard planted on our new property. And this was just dairy farm um, mm -hmm. ground. Um, and Chug got some serious health issues, Chug Wilson, and then offered us a chance to buy Wilson. So that's how we ended up with two orchards. <laughs> um, Wilson's Orchard, uh, just north of Iowa City, is our sort of retail location. So that's where people come out, do you pick. We have a bakery there. We have two restaurants, an event center. Um, wow. And all that goes on there at our Solon location, about seven miles north of there where we live. We have, that's where we make cider. We make hard cider, sweet cider. We pack apples for wholesale. Um, and we have uh, 25 acres of orchard there as well. Wow. Um, you know, this is, sounding a lot, this is sounding a lot more than retirement now, Paul. Yeah, it sort of got away from me. Yeah, it was... Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's the nature of the beast. Um, and we've got two kids, uh, Katie and Jacob, that are both in the business oh, with oh. us now. Um, oh, fantastic. Uh, yep. And uh, so they, we've kind of divided the world up and we feel pretty good about that. Um, Katie runs the sort of food service side of the business, events, uh, oh, restaurants, okay. bakery, oh. that stuff. Jacob uh, runs the retail and wholesale side of the more oh, yeah. sales and marketing kind of functions. Oh yeah. And I'm sort of cleaning up the pieces, mostly doing the farming and the fix it 
stuff oh, and wow. farming, fix it and finance. I'm the triple F. Fantastic. That's a great story. Um, you know, uh, I worked for, I'm Iowa State uh, pathologist, of course, plant pathologist, but um, worked for years with uh, apple growers in Iowa and elsewhere on uh, integrated pest management. And <clears throat> I remember thinking that uh, that Wilson's Orchard uh, presented some special challenges from the standpoint of doing IPM because you're working directly with customers that are there on the farm picking apples on your trees. And that's not the story for every, certainly for every orchard, uh, this pick your own mode. Uh, can you comment on how that influences the fact that the the fact that the customers are there at the orchard uh, uh, frequently. Can you uh, uh, comment on how that influences your approach to what you can do for pest and disease management? Yeah, yeah, it's a really good question and a really big challenge for us and for anybody that's in this business. So the first thing I would say is that we probably take way more risks on pest management than a lot of, uh, certainly than any commercial grower that I know of would because we don't really see the need to have 95% perfect fruit. Um, mm -hmm. Customers don't necessarily expect it uh, and certainly don't demand it, especially here in the Iowa City area. Mm -hmm. um, so our clientele is pretty important to that. I think if we were in a more competitive or uh, you know, maybe less liberal environment for lack of a better <laughs> word, we might, we, might, uh, we might have to tighten up our our uh, pest management program. And the other thing is that we're, while we're not organic, we really are trying to commit ourselves to reducing the amount of uh, sprays that we do, and certainly to reducing the amount of, of chemical warfare that we, that we have to engage in. Um, so, but inevitably you have to spray. Um, you know, we do, we do a lot of our work with scab uh, control ahead of when our main customer base is getting out into the orchard. So that's not been a, a big problem. Although since we got into strawberries, um, that means people are coming out in early June and it's not completely unusual to still have scab sprays going on uh, oh. at that period. No. Um, we have, for instance, we have uh, our farm is 88 acres over there and it's divided quite neatly by a creek, a big creek that you really can't cross uh, on foot. So we have a bridge that acts as our control access. Chug and Joyce Wilson had apples on both sides of the creek. We've been slowly moving them all to the south side of the creek so that we can, we can control access to them. And we'll just control it at the bridge and say, you know, no admittances. Oh, I see. So it's a previously people could wander in and you wouldn't necessarily know it. Yeah. And I we, see. We, I we see. feel like we have a legal and a and just a, a natural responsibility to keep people out of the orchard, um, you know, during that reentry interval. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one thing that we do. But we also make some fairly conscious decisions. Um, especially later on in the apple season, say about, you know, about the time that Japanese beetles are coming on. Mm -hmm. um, we used to, you know, we used to use a lot of seven to try and knock them back because seven has a very short reentry interval, um, but it is an organophosphate. We didn't feel good about it. It's really hard on IPM programs. And <clears throat> um, so what we've done 
of late is we've learned to close our eyes to Japanese beetles um, and allow them to do what they do. Early varieties like say low dyes, uh, yellow transparencies, um, even some stuff like Williams pride, things like that. Some of the real early stuff, they may affect the fruit itself, but by and large what they do, we, in order maybe to make ourselves feel good is we consider it summer pruning. So <laughs> they really affect Honeycrisp, which need the color anyways. Yeah. And they will go and take out, starting at the top of the tree usually, uh, a lot of the new growth, uh, they'll just defoliate it. And, you know, <laughs> in, in severe years, lately it seems like we haven't had as significant uh, pressure. And I don't know if we're starting to get some natural controls. I know they are back east. We haven't seen any real proof of that yet, but we have seen a, uh, maybe our expectations are just for obliteration by Japanese beetles, but we haven't seen the kind of numbers that, that, that we usually do. But we have learned to live to a certain extent with some stuff like that. So they're, they're mainly defoliating your trees rather than bothering the fruit, is that right? Yeah, they don't really bother fruit from, from galas, you know, from stuff that ripens from about the middle of August on, we rarely, I, I would say we almost never see any damage. The only damage you might see is if, you know, if, if there was some kind of hail injury or some kind of uh, physical opening into the apple, a crack or something, they'll get in there and, and, and make a nuisance. But, you know, that's yeah. Yeah. anyways. Yeah, the hail injuries. Yeah. You know, I recall Donald Lewis, who uh, just recently retired, but was our extension entomologist for many years for specialty crops. Uh, saying that uh, they uh, they don't fully understand why some years are worse than others, you know. But there is a cyclical nature to the populations of of uh, Japanese beetles that um, you know, even aren't fully understood. People can't predict, you know, is this going to be a bad year, or a good year? But in Central Iowa, we had the same experience you did, and that this was a, a lower pressure year. Yeah, yeah. So that oh, that's. that's we do that. We, we've also uh, been pretty active to use pheromone disruption for control of coddling moth. Uh -huh. And that worked really well for us for about six, seven years. Uh -huh. And then it sort of fell flat on its face for us and we started to get uh -huh. some coddling moth damage. Um, so we've gone back into low impact IPM programs uh -huh. um, on the advice actually of some people out of Washington. We're not the only ones seeing that. I think um, basically, there seems like with pheromone disruption for coddling moth, uh, there is a shelf, a, a sort of half-life on it or something. I don't oh, know. Oh, really? You mean yeah, they, 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 they don't respond to it as much after a while? After a while, especially oh. if you get a, a population, sort of a, a local population that, uh, that somehow figures out a way around it, mm -hmm. uh, it can become quite a, quite a nuisance. So... Uh, if you look at the Washington State um, uh, recommendations anymore, they've become a lot more aggressive about uh, not depending exclusively on pheromone disruption for coddling moth or... Uh, I, I see. That, or that, that's, that's, interesting. that's interesting because, um, 
You know, I used to hear the entomologists talk about nearby woodlands, you know, being a source of mated females that had been mated in the in the woodland that would fly over to the orchard. Of course, it's too late if they're already pregnant and they come in and lay eggs. You don't get the value of preventing mating because they've done it somewhere else. But I, I think those orchards in Washington State, that's not the case. They don't have any woodlands around them. I mean, it's dry country. So I, it must be something else, uh, you know, leading to that sort of thing. I think it's just pressure. I think there's huge oh, pressure. You know, I mean, it's oh, a, they're building up numbers. Yeah, yeah, single band of and and so they are kind of developing um, both IPM programs that incorporate some softer materials to help out, but also they're, as I understand it, they're improving their pheromone technology to sort of you know the early pheromones basically were. They just released pheromones all the time, mm -hmm. um, whereas what you really want is stuff that's really focused that pheromone release uh, during the time, you know, that early evening time when they're when those uh, cowling moths are most active. So, yep, and then they're going as well. I mean, we couldn't do it in Iowa probably. We don't have the critical mass, but out there they're doing these releases of sterile Cuddling moths. Oh, uh huh. And just, just to kind of drown out the population, and yeah. Uh, so the I see the egg laying would be down. Yeah, no, I haven't heard of that uh, being done here. But um, what you what you're doing sounds um, pretty sophisticated. If you're using some kind of timed release pheromone, uh, that's uh, that's uh, new on me. That sounds like a really clever idea. Trying to go a little closer to nature with that. You're listening to a podcast series called Smarter Apple Spraying. The series is part of a three-year project in Iowa and Ohio that is funded by USDA's Crop Protection and Pest Management Program. Now, back to our interview. Yeah, well, there's, so, so we, we try to do as much as we can to eliminate broad spectrum control of pests. Um, and we've been, I would say, moderately successful, you know, we, <laughs> the um, uh, you know your question about you know how you interface with consumers at the same time that's all kind of been okay with apples um, we're into raspberries now uh -huh. um, we've, we've expanded the number of crops we grow significantly wow. um, we used to do just apples and pumpkins now we start with tulips and then wow. we go with strawberries and raspberries summer raspberries blueberries Wow. And then into apples, uh, we do cut flowers. This year we did cherry tomatoes. Uh, it's all kind of getting people out to the farm as often as we can. Oh, uh, you pick crops. Sure. Um, oh, that's you pick flowers too. Wow. That's yeah, great. you pick flowers. It's mostly a chance for people to go out and take pictures of themselves smiling <laughs> in the flower patch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. You know uh, what you said, uh, Paul, about uh, you know the uh, sort of hitting it a little hitting the disease management in the early season, a little bit harder, the scab, et cetera. It reminds me of what Chug Wilson used to say. And he said he would just stop spraying about the 1st of July, he'd hit it hard in the spring. And then uh, he just quit spraying uh, completely, um, uh, and, you know, for better or worse, because he was worried about that in his customers. And so, I don't know, I'm sure you're doing a more sophisticated uh, approach, but uh, with your background. Well, I mean, it's one of the things that so interests us about the smart sprayer and coupled with, you know, we're, we're not Luddites. We believe very strongly that uh, technology can really help us advance towards a more, uh, a lighter footprint, you know, ecologically. And the smart sprayer by, you know, 
by allowing you to limit the amount of spray that's actually not getting deposited where you want it, I think makes perfect sense, uh, especially coupled with um, some, you know, emerging and or, or constantly improving, it seems like um, sort of software or apps that say, okay, if you want to control, you know, coupled with monitoring of insect populations, then you can start to see when things are emerging. So you get the best bang for your buck, um, whether it's insects or say sooty blotch, fly speck, you know, these diseases, uh, scab, so that the combination of all of these tools, I think, can really, really greatly help us. Um, and, and one thing that we've noticed, I mean, I grew up in this business as a kid, and I mean, the only insect that was good was a dead one. I mean, there's just no question about that. You know, you saw bugs, you were going to spray something, and it was not going to be easy. <laughs> you know, it was it was going to be harsh. Body count, right? You want body count. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, <laughs> and so, and then we ran into problems, you know, and then all these indirect feeders, mites and leaf rollers and all this stuff start to just go crazy, right? Because we're killing all the predators that can normally control them quite readily. And so then you end up with miticides that are, you know, useful for two years and then getting resistance and blah, blah, blah. So by the, the, that spiral can be reversed. And we see the same thing in our situation where once you stop just nuking everything, you know, with broad spectrum pesticides, you encourage the good guys, which are 98, you know, by most accounts, somewhere in the 98% range of the, of the, critters out there are good guys, um, you, you allow them to do their work, those indirect feeder problems just go away. I mean, we have, we've never used a miticide on oh. our farms, never. Impressive, impressive. Yeah. Um, huh. We do get outbreaks of aphids sometimes, but you know, if you spray for aphids early days, um, you can knock them back, but if you use the wrong material, you're gonna keep spraying for aphids for a long time. Oh, uh-huh. Um, okay, so product, so is, product is really important there in timing product and timing. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, and, and, you know, just in general, I think we, we have a luxury. Okay. I don't want to speak for the apple industry because if you're growing apples and only making 12 bucks a bushel, you know, selling them through the packing house, you can't afford to have any, any pest problems on your apples or disease. Mm -hmm. For us, we can tolerate some of that, uh, as I said earlier. And I think, that allows us a lot of latitude in taking some chances. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned this uh, smart sprayer. Um, they, they used to call it intelligent sprayer, but now it's, I think it's marketed uh, commercially as the name smart sprayer. I, I know you, uh, unless you've unless you've got gotten ahead of me, uh, I don't think you own one yet, do you? No, I don't. I'm waiting for, they're they're too expensive for me still. <laughs> they are they are uh, they are high, you know, and so that to me that's a an interesting question. We've had a couple of economists uh, working on this exact situation. What's the payback period, you know, versus yeah. orchard size? And uh, no surprise, if you have 200 acres of apples, it pays back quicker, you know. But, yeah, um, but, um, yeah I mean, you've, you've been in on those uh, meetings that we've had. And with some of these growers in Ohio, that's, that's right where they develop the smart sprayer uh, that have been using it. I was on doing a episode with Andy Lind the other day uh, and he's uh, 
he had a prototype and now he's bought two i think that were you know those retrofit kits that you yeah. buy and you take your you take your standard air blast and you retro do it but um he uh seems to be real high on it now he's not doing a pick your own operation he's doing uh you know uh a more uh, uh i guess you'd say wholesale oriented um yeah. right but that's a that's a big size orchard and yeah so i mean if you take a, a you know moderate size orchard like yours what would be the payback um period um one thing andy pointed out i think is interesting uh, and we've noticed the same thing in our university trials is that a lot of the spray savings for that um smart sprayer happen in the spring that's really not a surprise when you think about a, a uh a regular air blast going through an orchard there's very few leaves right it's like half inch green or something right and most of it's just barren but the but the air blast doesn't know that and so you put a lot of spray that doesn't uh, you know it doesn't help you and but in the case of the in the case of the smart sprayer it just uh calibrates down and targets those little bits of foliage and you end up saying been you know at that time of year you might be saving 60 70 percent of your volume it's less so when you get into midsummer when you just got a wall of foliage um, that's a little bit different but uh yeah we you know we've done uh these uh i don't know if you've ever done spray coverage tests but you go back in the business a long way so you probably have done these little water sensitive papers and that yeah. kind of stuff you know and it, it, intelligence sprayer or the smart sprayer has almost exactly the same coverage level it's just that it's doing it, it's doing it with less volume because less is going up in the ground or up in the air and down on the ground and generally being wasted but <clears throat> so yeah that, i think a lot of growers are looking at it but uh, i don't know anybody in the states bought it yet yeah and i think you know this is one area where i would have thought we could use some government assistance to just help yeah you know, yeah yeah, growers yeah and, on the, on the cut and Andy and Andy says this, you know, in in, in Ohio, Andy Lynn said, um, as far as he knows, there's not a support uh, in Ohio for this yet. But he knows of some states where um, uh, government money uh, is being used for this, um, and um, so it's a bit of a state decision as to how to use some of this federal money. I think it's federal money that's passing through to the states, but then the state mm -hmm. has to decide how to use it. And um, you know, I can't tell you why uh, we're not doing that uh, yet in Iowa, but this, you know, the I think it pretty clearly um, fulfills some of the needs of reducing pesticide load and it's, you know, not, not reducing effectiveness of the spray. Yeah, no, the effectiveness has been a real eye opener on those, on that panel and, you know, the results that they've seen with both the commercial growers and in the trials at the universities. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's really, really impressive because uh, I mean, I, I would be surprised for us if it wouldn't actually improve um, coverage uh, just because of how we, well, one thing that we do as a sort of poor man's uh, approach is we, when foliage is light, we spray every other middle and that goes back to, you know, many years in Michigan. Oh, so, sure, of course. Yeah, that was a standard thing back, what, back in the 80s, you go back yeah, far enough, but, yeah, 70s, 80s. Yeah. But you still have a lot of spray going amiss, you know, there's just no question about that. Yeah, for sure, yeah. Um, else i wanted to ask you well um so you're you you have an open mind it sounds like about this smart sprayer technology you know they have to have to get into your price range but uh, hopefully the price will come down when the volume uh, of use goes up but i know a lot of them are being sold around the country uh, probably most of them to to larger enterprises that you mentioned um now uh, 
I, I'd imagine that these, you know, we were also testing disease warning systems for things like sooty blotch and fly speck, but I'd imagine, uh, maybe I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm guessing um, that that would be a little harder for you because of your customer base and, and their, their needs to get into the orchard, or can you, can you run that kind of thing? Oh, no, we run, we, we very much depend on, on, uh, on, you know, software to tell us where we're at combined with, uh, you know, traps and monitoring of populations oh, and things like that. We, you know, the whole NIWA system. Oh, you're using NIWA. Yeah, we use NIWA a lot. We, we had our own uh, in-orchard uh, monitoring system, but once NIWA came out, and I mean, we're lucky here in Eastern Iowa, we, I sit with, uh, I can read from the Iowa City Airport, which is 10 miles, well, maybe six, seven miles south of us, Cedar Rapids Airport, which is probably 12 miles north of us, and then this guy, Mike Malik, uh, private grower, has set up his own station, which is just about four or five miles from us, so we have three data oh, yeah. that we can yeah. look at, and we can run those models. And the models have gotten better and better. Um, and you know, when you use those models, you also start to see how they compare with your own experience. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, it's better to have your own in orchard, uh, and there are microclimates and things like that. But you know, by and large, we've been very, very happy with um, you know with sort of the the information that they give us and the tool that that they add to us to, to be able to. You know, it's it's not unusual early stage scab to be able to to hold off because you know we don't have that many mature uh, escapoles. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's also very very common on the insect populations that we can that we can look at degree days and save one spray. You know, mm -hmm. um, here there or otherwise. Yeah, um, for sure. And, yeah. So I I mean I think the the biggest challenge for us, you know, going forward, I think the, the smart spray technology is a given. I, I just don't see that, you know, the, it, it makes so much sense. It's, it's just got to happen. And eventually we'll have to invest in that one way or the other. Um, the problem is these new emerging pests, you know, like stink bugs and uh, mm -hmm. spotted, uh, spotted lanternfly. Um, have you got those? Uh, well, we've certainly seen stink bug damage increase the last couple of years, especially this last year. Um, we haven't seen lantern flies, but they're, I think in Wisconsin, maybe. Oh, oh really? Not close. Bad. I didn't realize. I thought they were, had, I think they appeared mostly in the, the beginning in the east, didn't they? Like Pennsylvania and places yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I know they've, I know they've found them in Michigan. I somehow yeah. think they found them. In, and, and the stink bug was one that they've been warning us about for years. Yeah. We hadn't really seen much of that but boy this last year we got hit mm. pretty hard and uh we're mostly on hard. mostly on the soft fruit or uh, apples too oh on apples yeah mm -hmm. yeah so um and turns out that i don't know some of the information i've been reading about suggests that soybeans are uh if if you're following if, if you have a soybean field next to you you could expect to have uh, increased problems with uh, with stink bugs and oh, so, and, so then, and, and they'll they'll fly pretty far too won't they yeah they're, they're i don't think they're aggressive flyers but i think they are is they certainly you know we saw quite a bit this year and that's you know that's a real uh 
kind of deflating bug because it's oh, it's are. so hard to kill you know yeah I mean, really it, tough to kill and i've seen pictures in uh, pennsylvania of them sweeping them off their front porches you know like like snow yeah. I mean, that, that many i hope we never get to that point here but yeah i don't know what do you do about those chemically anything well i mean the only thing that really touches them is either the stout organophosphates or pyrethroids and neither of them are good options for us you know pyrethroids are not as dangerous to humans maybe but boy they do so much damage to a decent ipm program yeah, um yeah. we don't have a good idea on how to do that you know i think mm -hmm. i think it's an evolving problem and um with all of this i think there are some indications that there's some natural control you know some some other insects that control those pests those introduced pests in other countries where they're native uh, uh, and hopefully that will be our long-term solution yeah for sure there's just one more question uh, paul this has been super interesting by the way thank you um if you uh, were advising i'm not trying to talk about competitors but if you uh, got a call or a contact from somebody in the midwest who was thinking about putting in a pick your own apple orchard uh, what advice would you give them, particularly from the IPM perspective? Well, I would, you know, I, I think they have to know their market. But the main thing um, is, I guess, to use a rational approach and not, you know, I, I, you know in, in today's world, when you have everything at your fingertips, uh, literally with Google and all that, you can get pretty swept up in, in, uh, the best of the best of the best. And I think for pick your own operations, um, there is a lot more uh, uh, sort of tolerance of minor insect damage and minor, you know, a little bit of sooty blotch, a little bit of flight. So balancing the spray program and the consumer needs are, I think can, can make a big difference in terms of profitability. Having said that, I would, quickly follow up with a warning that is you can't let stuff get away from you. You know, you can't let scab get a, a serious foothold. Um, we found out rather problematically, uh, we had a, uh, when I first planted this orchard here, we planted five acres of scab immune varieties that I was gonna manage organically. Well, I did a crappy job managing organically. I got Plumpiculio established there. And oh yeah. 10 years down the road, we're still fighting Plumpiculio. So you know you can't you, you can't let your guard down. Oh boy, you didn't. You mean you just didn't find a good organic insecticide against that Plumpiculio? Yeah, I mean we were kind of working three ways against the middle there, and, and <laughs> didn't get it done at the right time. You know there are oh, yeah. materials that will take care of it. It's yeah. just you have to be Johnny on the spot, and you can't. You know it's not like the Gutayan of old or somewhere, you know, you're oh. one and done against Kikulio. It's, it's, yeah, uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, Gutayan was a, a lot of people speak nostalgically about it, but of course yeah. it was a heavy hitter in terms of yeah. uh, environmental impact too. So, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, really appreciate your time, Paul. This has been super fascinating and uh, to, to me and I'm sure to listeners. So, um, uh, thank you. We've been talking to uh, Paul Rash, the owner of Wilson's Orchard in um, uh, near Iowa City in Eastern Iowa. And uh, again, thanks, Paul. Well, thank you, Mark, and thanks for all the work you guys are doing. It's great. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Smarter Apple Spraying podcast series. You can find more episodes in the series 
at the Smarter Apple Spraying website. The link is https colon two front slashes www.smartapplespray.plantpath.iastate.edu. The host for this series is Mark Gleason. Jose Gonzalez is the editor. The Smarter Apple Spraying podcast series is funded by a grant from USDA's Crop Protection and Pest Management Program. For more information about the three-state project, contact Mark Gleason. Email is mgleason, M-G-L-E-A-S-O-N, at iastate.edu in Iowa, or Melanie Lewis Ivy. Email is ivey.14 at osu.edu at the Ohio State University.